0: One in three teens will experience physical, sexual, or emotional abuse from someone they're in a relationship with before they become adults. And by the time they're in college, nearly 50% of women report violent or abusive dating behaviors. February is Teen Dating Violence Awareness and Prevention Month, and therapist Brandy Stuhand from Chrysalis is our guest on this episode of When This Year. Drugs and alcohol. Bullying. Unhealthy relationships. Depression.
1: Internet safety. Substance use. Body image.
0: Self-injury. Suicide. Anxiety. Social media. Kids. Pre-teens. Parenting. Middle school. High school. Adolescents. Teens. Coping skills. Self-care.
1: Relationships. Strategies. Life skills. Prevention.
0: Solutions. Help. Hope. Leadership. Insight. Information. Inspiration. You're listening to Win This Year. The official podcast of Not My Kid, a prevention nonprofit focused on inspiring positive life choices by helping kids, parents, families, and those who work with youth. Informative, interesting, inspiring. Win this year. Welcome to Win This Year. I'm Shane Watson, Public Information Officer and Prevention Specialist for Not My Kid. Our guest today is Brandi Stuham. A residential director and therapist for Chrysalis, a nonprofit organization dedicated to individuals and families impacted by domestic abuse. Through a comprehensive, trauma informed approach of services, Chrysalis aims to prevent domestic abuse. Brandi Stuhan, residential services leader, is a licensed associate counselor. She began as an intern and has been with Chrysalis for six and a half years. She possesses knowledge of domestic abuse and women's issues, trauma treatment, program development and implementation client assessment, and crisis intervention, and experience with individual and group counseling for adults and children. Brandy has a master's degree in counseling with an emphasis on trauma, abuse, and deprivation, and is a clinically certified trauma professional trained in EMDR. Brandy oversees residential programs. Brandy, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me today, Shane. I appreciate it.
0: Brandy joins us today to discuss Teen Dating Violence Awareness and Prevention Month, an observance that occurs every February and seeks to raise awareness of the issue of teen dating violence in order to stop it before it starts. For those who might not be familiar with the prevalence of this issue, I'd like to share a statistic courtesy of loveisrespect.org, which is a project of the National Domestic Violence Hotline. One in three teens will experience physical, sexual, or emotional abuse from someone they're in a relationship with Before they become adults. And by the time they're in college, nearly 50% of women report violent or abusive dating behaviors. That statistic makes it clear we need to have this conversation. So, to start us out, Brandy, what is the definition of an abusive relationship?
1: You know, Shane, it's really just a pattern of behaviors that's utilized by one person in the intimate relationship. Partner relationship to really maintain power and control over the other person in the relationship. So, it, and it can look a lot a lot of different ways, but it's really about power and control.
0: That statistic I read in in the intro leads me to my next question. Based on some of the categories of abuse it mentions, it's important to emphasize that abuse isn't solely physical. What are all the potential types of abuse that can exist within relationships?
1: You know, I'm glad you asked that, Shane, because so oftentimes it's a common misconception is that it's a phys- domestic violence is physical abuse. Um, it's not. It's verbal and emotional. It can be financial abuse, uh, religious abuse, sexual abuse, sexual coercion and manipulation, even reproductive coercion, technology abuse. It's, it's really it runs the gamut in all aspects of relationships.
0: So there's one I want to hone in on for just a second, if we can go off on a a brief little tangent here. You mentioned technology abuse. Since we're focusing on Teen Dating Violence Awareness and Prevention Month, for you parents out there, you've heard us mention several times on WIN this year the importance of being aware of what's going on on your child's device, on their phone, on their tablet, et cetera. If we are not conscious of what they are doing on those devices, we may miss something. And so that's an area where an abusive partner may seek to control their use of that device as well. So what are the warning signs then of an individual who may be controlling or abusive? As parents, what do we warn our teens to look out for and what do we look out for?
1: You know, I think it's most important if as a parent, if you if you know the significant other for your team teen, teen, and then really just pay attention. Are you noticing a lot of uh, jealousy? Um, how do they act in front of each other? Do they seem to dominate and isolate the other person's time? Um, it's it's a lot of insulting, shaming, belittling in front of people. And you'll also see a lot of withdrawal from the victim. Right. So you'll see um, more acquiescing to the person who's controlling and dominating them. Um, You'll see mood changes. It's um, it's just really important to just pay attention to the dynamic of how they're behaving on a regular basis. So because it can for some teens, you'll see subtle differences um, and for others, you won't see uh, or you'll see subtle differences. And then sometimes you'll see huge differences in their behaviors.
0: And that's where that relationship is so important as a parent. If we're not spending that intentional time to connect with them, preferably daily or at least a few times a week, as you mentioned, sometimes those symptoms, those signs can be easy to miss. Some of them are more subtle than others. There's two things you mentioned I want to hone in on for the parents out there. Number one is withdrawal from family and friends when that, when that person is controlling them, controlling their time, saying who they can and cannot spend time with or talk to. That is something we've mentioned before on WIN this year where that's a red flag. Now, sometimes withdrawal is a matter of an abusive relationship. Sometimes it's a matter of someone who is struggling with substance use issues. They may be self-injuring. What it means to us as parents, though, is we recognize it, we don't deny it, and we start that conversation. And the other thing you mentioned that I love is we need to know their partner. We It's so important as parents that we know not only our child's friends, we need to know who they're hanging out with in general, but it's certainly if they're in a romantic relationship with someone, get to meet that person, read their nonverbals, and, and trust our parental instinct. So if our if parents do realize that their teen is or has been in an abusive relationship, what are the best ways to help? And also, are there things that we need to avoid doing or avoid saying? Yeah,
1: definitely. And I think you just made the uh, a really good point is you you need to be observant pay attention know what they're doing where they're going who they're hanging out with but really just tune into what your children's needs are um obviously as parents we know every child is different and their needs are different and their behaviors are different um but if you if you feel like your teen is in an abusive relationship it's really about calmly and opening openly having those conversations and being real honest um And it's really important with teens, as we all know, don't start preaching or getting judgmental because usually as soon as you do that, they'll shut you right down. Um, I think it's teaching in a very subtle way what healthy relationships look like, validate whatever their feelings are, um, and then Never put them in a place where they feel at fault. We really just have to create, and this is, and I, and as a parent, it, it's really hard sometimes because there's going to be times you're going to hear your kids say stuff that's really hard for you to hear. But most importantly, is that they know that you're open and you're willing to hold any information and partner with them, help them, love them, talk them through it, and then offer them other additional support if that makes them feel more comfortable right? Is it calling someone together to get more information? Um, It's really just validating their feelings, hearing them, talking with them, and then bring them into the conversation of what do you want to do next? How should we move forward? Create that partnership. So if they feel like they're a partner with you, they're more likely to talk to you if things do escalate.
0: I like asking, what do you want to do next? Because someone who's been in an abusive relationship, their life feels very out of control. They feel like options have been taken away from them. And by doing that, you return a certain amount of control to them and the partnership is huge. You're not going through this. We're going through this. I'm going to work with you. We are going to get you help. We are going to help you weather the storm. And another thing that stood out to me from what you just said, don't place them at fault. As parents, we need to not say what you must have done something to make that happen. Whether it's an abusive romantic relationship or bullying, which is pure abuse, that's exactly what it is. That individual is seeking out power and control, and that's what an abusive relationship is. It it is not merited. It is not earned. It it is not created by something the victim is doing. And so I love that approach to it. Another thing we need to know is about the cycle. I know there's often a three-step cycle associated with abusive relationships. What are those three steps and how does that cycle work? Because there may be parents out there when they hear this, they're going to realize they've seen their teen, their child going through these three steps with a partner.
1: Right? Yeah. We refer to that as the cycle of violence. Um, and it usually starts with the tension building phase and in the tension building phase. That's when the abuser tends to get uh pretty moody. They try to isolate the victim more. They'll also withdraw attention from the victim. Um, they make threats, criticize. It's just an overall really tense time. Um, and as relationships progress as, um, intimate partner, partner violence, relationships progress, that tension building time can become longer. It can become shorter. It really is dependent on each relationship, but that's, it's building. That's what it's doing in the first step. All that tension's building. Then there's the second, um, step of the cycle. And that's the explosion phase. And that's when the abuser becomes physically, sexually, verbally, or emotionally abusive and really tries to wield power and control over someone. So we go from tension building to the explosion, and then we move into the honeymoon period. The honeymoon period is where the abuser tends to feel remorse, will beg for forgiveness, cries. Says, I'm so sorry. I I never meant to do this. I'll never do it again. They may buy gifts um, and they also may enlist family and friends to try to convince the victim to return to them. That they're sorry they didn't mean it. You know, I think in in teen dating, teen dating violence, where you're going to see that is the abuser's going to enlist the person's friends. Oh, he's so sorry, or she's so sorry. You know, they didn't mean it. And, and that's what they do in the honeymoon phase. And so that honeymoon phase continues. Um, if the victim does decide to stay or continue the relationship, uh, then it goes back, it'll cycle back into the tension-building phase again, and we'll just go through that cycle repeatedly.
0: As parents, we need to recognize this because there may be parents out there that have seen their teen go through this and didn't even know how to articulate it or what labels to put on each phase. And if this is happening and that honeymoon phase keeps coming back up and I'm sorry and I'm never going to do this again, but there is no true remorse, there's no change accompanying it, it's going to turn back around to the tension and then the explosion, it's going to repeat infinitely until this individual gets help. And, and and it's important to emphasize, and I know Chrysalis does this as well, not only is the person who is being abused, not only do they need counseling and they need help, but the person that is acting out in the behavior, more often than not, they need assistance to be able to change that behavior, to learn how to manage anger, to learn what healthy relationships look like. And that leads me... To my next question, what are some common myths surrounding abusive relationships that are important for us to dispel
1: you know the first one that always comes to mind is uh, that domestic violence just it doesn't happen that often um, quite frankly it does it happens quite quite often um, and people think it's only physical it's it's not it's emotional it's psychological verbal uh financial and that it's an anger management issue and domestic violence isn't an anger management issue. It's a power and control issue. And the the thing that I always tell people is if it was an anger management issue, the way this person who is angry would react would be towards multiple people. But when it's focused on just one, that's not an anger management issue. Anger management means I struggle in how to control my anger and so I'm going to probably for lack of a better word, pop off all the time at different people, when it's really focused on one person, that's not an anger management issue. That's a power and control issue. Um, I also think it's really important to understand that uh, young men can be victims and men in general can be victims of domestic violence. We, we go through life really believing that it's predominantly women and that's that's not necessarily the case. There's a large amount of men who are victims of domestic violence too.
0: Are there risk factors that increase the likelihood of someone being in an abusive relationship, both in terms of the person acting out in the abuse and the individual impacted by it? Is there things that, as parents, we need to realize places someone at higher risk so that if we have a teen in our life, whether it's our child, our grandchild, somebody we're mentoring, knowing that they are at greater risk, risk making sure we spend that extra time in advance outlining appropriate relationships, modeling that behavior for them, keeping the eye out for those signs and symptoms. What are, are there, and what are the risk factors involved for someone being at higher risk of getting into an abusive relationship?
1: You know, it's interesting. I feel like there's so many factors that can contribute to this. And because it's so diverse, I mean, it goes across socioeconomic statuses. Uh, It goes, again, across ethnicities and race. Um, It's not, predominantly focused on any one group of people. You know, there's the individual factors, the relational factors, the community factors. But in in all of my years with Chrysalis, and I have worked with victims and offenders of domestic violence, a lot of it really does relate to childhood trauma. It's how children are raised, it's their attachment styles, it's how do, how were they taught to have healthy relationships, right? And how were they taught to process emotions, and we're so I think it's a whole bunch of things. If you go online and you start looking, Shane, for like what are the risk factors, you know, and you go to the CDC or the National Institute of Health, you know, you'll hear or you'll see like low self-esteem and low socioeconomic statuses and mental health and substance abuse. And those things can definitely definitely play a factor in those. I'm not refuting that, but I think it's I think it's a holistic approach. It's it's looking at all of it, right? what's the dynamic in the home that we grew up in? What did we learn? How did we learn to have relationships with each other? And how did we learn how to resolve conflict? Right. Um, And so I think that's, I think that's really the most important is understanding healthy relationships, processing emotions and giving people this space to feel their feelings.
0: What we create and model in the home, and what we set as the standard for our kids is going to become their idea of what a relationship should look like. And, and you mentioned trauma when you were talking about some some risk factors. We've written a blog on trauma informed care, and we'll be doing a podcast episode on it in the near future. But for those unfamiliar with it, can you explain a bit about trauma informed care and why it's important, especially in the work that you do?
1: Yeah, definitely. Trauma informed care is It's a salutogenic approach rather than a pathogenic approach, right? And so what that salutogenic approach says is it looks at somebody and it says, what happened to you, not what's wrong with you, right? So oftentimes in mental health and in medical fields, we go a more pathogenic approach where we go and we just try to treat the symptoms, right? Um, So if somebody's coming in and they're experiencing abuse, but they're also having anxiety and um, other behaviors. We oftentimes focus on the behaviors. Well, trauma-informed care doesn't focus on the behaviors. We try to figure out what happened to you. These behaviors are a symptom or a side effect of what happened, but what happened to you and how do we walk through that process and how do we resolve that? Because if you just focus on the behaviors, the person's having anxiety and depression, and it's those are very important and we need to acknowledge those. But it's really focusing on the person, their experience, uh, not making them feel bad and helping them through that journey of understanding who they are and how they got here. Um, And it's really relational based right? So oftentimes in the mental health field, we want to walk in and we want to be like, okay, here's the issue. Here's the diagnosis. Let's get working on therapy. And it's really about building a relationship with people because it's relationship over efficiency. For true authentic healing, we have to emotionally connect with people. We have to walk along in their journey, right? And we have to give them this space. And that's what trauma-informed care does. It also challenges those of us who are working in the field to know our biases, right, to know who we are and and teach ourselves how to stay in a calm and relaxed body so that we can be present for other people in their time of need. And that's really the the fundamental of trauma-informed care. It's, It's really looking at what happened to somebody and walking through that process instead of just saying what's wrong with you and dealing with the symptoms and the behaviors
0: addressing the root cause rather than just putting on the Band-Aid and, and calling it good. That's We approach Absolutely. things very similarly at Not My Kid and what immediately jumped to mind when you were talking about that is when we're helping families with substance use issues with their teens, whether it's in our early intervention program or our peer support, where we're looking at what led to this. Because drug and alcohol use, for an example, is a symptom. It's a symptom of something that's going on. You know, is it trauma? Is it someone that's got a neurotransmitter imbalance, et cetera? And so I love that approach that's focused on the solution rather than the problems and rather than the symptoms. So can you please tell us more about Chrysalis and the services that you provide?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Chrysalis has been in the, I think this is our 40th anniversary this year, actually, Uh, been in the Valley. And we uh, we have our emergency shelter. For victims, we have transitional housing, which is a longer two-year, up to two-year program, kind of after emergency shelter, if somebody qualifies for transitional housing. It's like a high, um, a little less support than emergency services, but it provides um, kind of like an in-between to be completely independent where there's still some case management. Uh, we have mobile victim advocates advocates that work out of our outreach office. We have outpatient counseling um, with uh licensed therapists for victims of domestic violence. Um, We kind of just do the whole approach. We also have the uh, victim perpetrator program. We are one of um, the only domestic violence agencies in the state that really kind of take a two-prong approach. We have all of our victim services, but we also have a program that's our offender treatment program. Because really holistically, you can't address domestic violence across the board if we're just dealing with one side of the population, right? Um, if you're just dealing with the victims, well then what's happening with the abusers? It's kind of going back to that trauma-informed care approach. We're looking at all of it, not just the symptoms. So we also have that offender treatment program where we do groups with, um, for felony and misdemeanor um, charged abusers.
0: What is the age range that you work with in your programs?
1: For um, offender treatment programs and like emergency transitional housing, uh, mobile victim advocacy, it's 18 and older. Uh, outpatient counseling will have, uh, we do have therapists who work with children in emergency shelter. Um, parents can bring children into shelter with them. And in transitional housing, it's also the same thing.
0: Okay. What was what was your motivation to earn your master's in counseling and to work in this particular field? What's your motivation or or your why?
1: My why. You know, I think we all have our own stories and we all go through life. And after you know, after walking through my own personal trauma uh, throughout childhood and adulthood and. and healing from that and learning from that. I wanted to be able to provide somebody else that safe place without judgment, like to heal for their own trauma. I want to be able to hold space for others as they navigate the complexities of their hurting. So that was really my, after I've gone through my own and, and, and have experienced that deep hurt and wounding. And it was just really important for me to be able to provide a space for other people to walk through that journey and not feel alone. Because so oftentimes when we're, we're in the pits of our despair, it's really hard for other people to just actively and attentively sit in it because it makes them uncomfortable. And for me, I I want people to have that. I want somebody like me to be able to sit with you no matter what's happened to you no matter what you need to share and just support you and meet you exactly where you're at and give you what you need in that moment and so that's honestly it was my own personal journey of healing from trauma that led me to it
0: and there's a power in being able to understand through lived experience you know as much knowledge as we can gain through through books or or through education or through credentialing there's an, a level of understanding when you've been there as a person, and there's a power in that. And like you talked about, just be the willingness to hold space for someone. What's the most fulfilling part of the work that you do at Chrysalis?
1: I would say that's probably it. I, I, I believe that everybody has their own journey and their own experiences, and each person's journey and their experience is sacred to them, and I respect that. And so when people will allow me into this journey, into these sacred uh, places, and they allow me to hold space with them, that's what's most fulfilling, because then I'm able to give people the the care and concern that all of us as humans deserve.
0: What's the most challenging aspect of the work you do?
1: I would say, honestly, the most challenging aspect is you can work with... Um, a a victim of domestic violence you can do all the things that you think are right right you can take all the right steps the the victim can do all the right things and at the end of the day they can still be unsafe right um so that would be the hardest is knowing that you can do your absolute 100 percent best at something and that doesn't mean that they're always safe
0: that's true and I imagine, given the nature of the work that you do, that self care has to be an important part of your routine. I could see that being, um, you know, a field of work that's very rewarding, but also at the same time, I could see where you would need to be very vigilant about taking care of your your own mental and emotional needs as well. Do you do you have a a, a self care routine that that works for you working in a field such as that?
1: Uh definitely. It's it's a huge part of Chrysalis. We as leaders and um, managers at Chrysalis are very, we ask our staff all the time during supervision, all like, what are you doing to take care of yourself? And I think it's really important that self-care has kind of a multi-pronged approach. You know, there's those things in the moment that I can do to kind of help calm my body and regulate myself in a moment, like take a moment to deep breathe you know, to kind of calm myself back down, reduce my anxiety. And that's good in the moment. But we also have to have those other things that we do that fill up Mm -hmm. our life that kind of refill our cup. So it's, it's, it's multiple things. And yes, I do have, um, I do have a practice And, and it changes depending on what's happening in my life and my work, right? Sometimes it takes a lot more effort to do it. And other times it feels like it's, it's effortless. But it's really important that that I'm always doing it, that I'm checking in with myself throughout the day. So it's, it's a lot of checking in with my body throughout the day, because we will become tense without realizing it and taking that moment to calm down, um, so that I can be present. And then, um, it might be at night. Um, I, I, I walk, um, I do mindful meditations, um, it's it's for each individual, and this is what I always tell my staff. Self care is a personal journey. You've got to find what what works for you, and I may give them options. You know, try these different things, um, and see what works best. But it's really finding what brings me peace, what fills me back up emotionally, and what prepares me to be able to walk into that next day and give people what they need.
0: Excellent. We are huge advocates of self care at Not My Kid, not only for people that work in the field but even for parents our last episode was on the eight dimensions of wellness we talked about self-care for parents so i i wanted to ask you about that because especially given the field that you are in dealing with the the situations that you deal with how crucial that is if people want to find out more about chrysalis or contact the organization what's the best way for them to do so
1: So the best way you can go to our website, it's www.noabuse.org. We also have a 24-hour crisis line, and that number is 602-944-4999. And then our outreach offices that hold our uh, offender treatment program, our outpatient counseling, and our mobile victim advocates, that number is 602-955-9059.
0: And we will make sure we put those in the show notes as well. If you didn't catch those on the fly, you didn't back up to hear them. As always, we will put those resources in the show notes. Now, you just gave uh, some excellent resources. I don't know if there's any more that you want to add because we always like to give our listeners resources related to the topic of each show. Uh, and we have a lot of national listeners, even though Not My Kid is Arizona based. Chrysalis is, I believe, based here in the Valley. In addition to Chrysalis, are there any resources? that people should know such as crisis lines that they may want to program into their phone in order to help themselves or to help others.
1: Right. There's the yes, there's the National Teen Dating Abuse Hotline. Okay. And that is 866-331-9474. And then there's also the National Domestic Violence Hotline. And that's 1-800-799-SAFE. S A F E.
0: Excellent is there anything else you'd like to add or anything I may have overlooked?
1: Yeah. I always tell people, trust your instincts and your intuition, right? And and I say that to parents too. Um, If you feel like something is not right, it may not be right. Take the time to ask the questions. Uh, Take the time to get to, to just dive in deep with somebody. If, you think you might be in an abusive relationship or if things just don't feel right. I still always say, trust yourself, um, seek help, uh, get answers. Um, what's the worst thing is happens is that you're wrong, but you're more educated. So I just, I, I always tell people, trust your instincts, listen to your gut. Um, you're usually not wrong.
0: That's something that the longtime listeners will recognize. They know exactly what I'm about to say right here. I have met and I have worked with several parents who have lost a child to an overdose. I have worked with several parents who have lost a child to suicide, and I've worked with parents who have adult children incarcerated related to drug and alcohol-involved uh, arrests. And when they've approached our organization and they've had time to heal and they, they want to share their experience, they want to make sure others don't go through the same thing, I've asked them all, you know, I've explained, I, I, I want to learn from you if you could go back and do anything differently, would you? And if so, what would it be? Every single one of them, every one of them has told me I would have trusted my instinct. I saw Mm -hmm. things. I felt things. My red, red flags were up. Alarm bells were ringing. And I didn't want to believe it. And they were either afraid to believe it because it broke their heart to think that this person that they love more than anyone could be dealing with whatever it was that was going on. Or they were afraid because if they did get professional help, mental health help, behavioral health help for their child, they were hesitant because they asked themselves, what will the neighbors say? What will our friends think? And I liken Mm -hmm. it to a broken leg. Behavioral health and mental health is health. We would not be ashamed to take our child to the ER for a broken leg. This is no different. People are going to say whatever they're going to say. It does not matter. To keep that child healthy and alive and safe and thriving, or if it's an adult, whoever it is, we need to not worry about what people are going to say. We need to remember that behavioral health and mental health is health. Brandy Stuhan, residential director and therapist for Chrysalis. Once again, the website is noabuse.org, noabuse.org. As always, all the resources will be down in the show notes. Brandy, thank you so much for sharing your time. Thank you for joining us here on WIN This Year.
1: Thanks, Shane. It was my pleasure.
0: As always on WIN This Year, we'd like to give you some resources in case you are facing a mental or behavioral health challenge or you're helping someone who is. You can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K. The crisis text line can be reached by texting the word LISTEN to 741-741. Community information and referral services are available by dialing 211 or visiting 211.org. And the Not My Kid text line can be reached by texting the word question to area code 602 580 0665. Once again, text the word question to area code 602 580 0665. Thanks once again to our guest, Brandy Stuhan of Chrysalis. If you've enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy Win This Year, please be sure to subscribe, share, and spread the word. Win This Year can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and nearly every other mainstream podcast outlet. If you have questions or concerns, would like to suggest a guest or a topic for a future episode, email us at at NotMyKid.org. As always, all links mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes, along with all the links for Not My Kid's social media. I'm Shane Watson, public information officer and prevention specialist for Not My Kid. Thank you again for listening to Win This Year.